Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. Uh, today's episode is a recording of a live event that I did at Portland's Jack London Bar. The subject of this live event was the world's first postmodern office building, uh, the Portland Building. I live in Portland, Oregon, and a lot of us are very familiar with it, and it's considered something of a local monstrosity. But if you have not seen the Portland Building, by all means, Google it. Get out your phone. Sit down at your computer. Take a look at this thing so you have context for the episode. And it's not an episode just about Portland, Oregon itself. It is an episode all about modernism, postmodernism, that kind of thing. Um, because it's a live event, the sound quality is a little off compared to what we normally get in the studio. Uh, but I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. All right. Thank you again for everyone for coming out tonight. Uh, so tonight I wanted to talk about one of the most notable pieces of architecture in downtown Portland, Oregon, the Portland Building. And not just in downtown Portland, but also in the entire United States and, in fact, the world. And I said notable, not best. Something does not have to be actually good to be notable. Um, and I want to talk about where this gigantic blue and kind of yellowy and sort of reddish monstrosity comes from, the philosophy behind it, and how this city ended up getting stuck with it. So to really appreciate where the Portland building comes from, we have to go back to the early 1970s. And in the early 1970s, Portland was not doing especially well. Um, but Portland, this might shock you, did not come fully formed out of the forehead of Zeus as a city with a whole bunch of food carts, craft breweries, and you know, third wave coffee roasting companies. It used to be a somewhat different town. And during the mid 20th century, uh, the downtown area was not doing especially well. Uh, starting in 1972, there was a plan for the downtown, which city planners cr uh, creatively called the Downtown Plan. And there's all this sort of energy and initiative to do things like get transit into the downtown area, to revitalize your core, uh, to give a you know, retail center, all that, that kind of thing. Um, and it worked. Maybe slightly too well, because now way too many people are moving here, driving up rent and real estate prices. But it worked. Now we have the opposite problem that uh, the city had in the mid-20th century. But during that era, during uh, the 1970s and early 1980s, when Portland is creating modern Portland, the city it would become today, there are two things that it lacks. Thing one is a dedicated municipal services building. Uh, a building where you can have like the Parks and Rec Department and the Water Bureau um, do Parks and Rec and Water Bureau stuff on a day-to-day -day basis. The city had been using rented space around town to do that, and a lot of people who did budget stuff said, you know, in the long run, that's very expensive. Renting ad infinitum is not a smart move. It is smarter to own than to rent. Uh, also, Portland lacked a big monument, a thing that is on a postcard. A thing that is kind of, you know, monumental, iconic, visual shorthand for your city. Kind of like how when you look at the Golden Gate Bridge, you think of, you know, San Francisco. Or when you look at the Space Needle, you think of Seattle. Or when you look at the Sydney Opera House, you see some city in Australia. I forget which one. But we didn't have one of those, and we wanted to have one of those. So there was this project and a lot of enthusiasm for making a new municipal services building a building where the Parks and Rec Department would hang out, and the exterior of which 
would be admirable by all kinds of visitors and tourists from the world over. So, Portland decided to do the only logical thing and have a design contest. And I'll get into the details of the design contest later. Um, by the way, my wonderful, lovely girlfriend, Sarah, who is literally a professional designer, also literally just facepalmed when I said design contest. <laughs> no, no, you're affirming my opinion so much right now. I love you. Um, anyway, um, the, the thing that ended up winning, ultimately, was the Portland building. And it is significant and famous for a lot of ways. It was the first ever postmodern office building ever to be built. What is postmodernism, you might be asking? Postmodernism is a reaction to modernism. What is modernism, you are hypothetically maybe thinking? Okay, wonderful. Um, the image behind me is, I think, a great example of the best and the worst of modernism. What you guys are looking at right now is the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California. And I picked this uh, picture because I think it looks totally badass, and I also think it looks totally dehumanizing and alienating. I think it looks wonderfully functional, and I also think it looks downright dystopian. And I think that this is all of modernism kind of summed up. It's clean lines, it's uniformity, it's 90 degree angles, it's, yeah, it's, it is both functional and also alienating. Uh, if you want another example of modernism uh, that's probably easily accessible to you guys, Ikea. Ikea is a lot of modernist furniture. So what modernism lacks are things like whimsy or ornament or decorations or little twirly gigs on the thing. So yeah, modernism doesn't have ornamentation and decoration and all that stuff. It doesn't have a sense of humor. It doesn't have any wit. It is very functional. There is an infamous quote by a modern architect, Le Corbusier, whose name I'm probably saying wrong. And he said, buildings are machines for living in. On one hand, that is a great thing that says, we don't want any bullshit or stupid shit or extraneous stuff. But on the other hand, it's like, don't, don't you kind of like want useless fun decorations on the thing? So postmodernism is a reaction to all of this. And postmodernism says, you know what? We're going to make buildings that are symbolic and that are funny and that fuck with your expectations and are kind of intentionally weird. Uh, postmodernists really, really believed in things like ornament for their own sake because ornamentation and decoration are cool. And they also had these ideas about how you respond to specific types of architecture. For example, if you were to see something that looked like a column or you know, had a bunch of like capitals or looked vaguely like a Greek or Roman temple, you might think that building's important, although that's a government building or a bank or a library or you know, something else that's important, like a taco restaurant. You, know? you would assign a certain amount of reverence to it. So they want to incorporate all of these various sort of classical references into their new postmodern designs. Um, the slide behind me shows the city hall in Missouga, Missouga, it's in Ontario, some Ontario city. <laughs> Missouga, Ontario, their city hall, and I think that is a pretty good example of everything that's kind of cool and also everything that is sort of awful about postmodernism. 
Yeah. So, in the early in the late 1970s and early 1980s, postmodernism, it was an idea. It hadn't really taken hold yet. Um, people were kicking around this idea, and it was sometimes showing up in small structures, houses and the like, sketches, that sort of thing. It was sort of viewed as the future of architecture, but there hadn't really been any big postmodern office buildings in a major American downtown. But remember, Portland, Oregon is trying to embedder its downtown, and it's hosting a design contest, and this is an opportunity for postmodernism to make its move. So, city officials in Portland, Oregon, when they are wanting to make this new municipal services building, they don't want to reach out to local architects. They're thinking, hey, we have this downtown plan, we are like making transit happen, we are bettering our downtown and improving things. We don't want to just reach out to your friendly local neighborhood architect. We want to reach out to people who are nationally known. And so, one of the per persons they reached out to was a guy called Philip Johnson. Philip Johnson was an architect, he lived in New York City, he was a big proponent of postmodernism, and they said that they wanted him to be a consultant you know, with this contest that they were doing. And Johnson said, I think that's great. In fact, I will waive my consultation fee because he was just so dang enthusiastic about this contest. Now, Philip Johnson, he knew people in the architectural world and he had an aesthetic and ideological agenda that he wanted to put forward. One guy that Philip Johnson knew was a younger architect called Michael Graves. Michael Graves was one of those up-and-coming postmodernists. At that point in his career, Graves, he had done a bunch of remodels and refurbishings around the Princeton, New Jersey area, and he had been noted as one of the standout postmodernists to today, but he hadn't done anything like a major sort of downtown office building type project. And Johnson starts thinking. Also, because Johnson was approached by the Portland City Council, he knew what the Portland City officials were into. And going back a little bit, the city councilors who ended up heading up this selection process, okay, without going into the weeds of local Portland history too much, this was headed up by Neil Goldschmidt. Neil Goldschmidt was the mayor of Portland, Oregon in the early 1970s, one of the youngest mayors of a major American city ever. Brilliant guy, very smart guy, really into planning. Also raped a 13-year-old, we gotta mention that. Sorry. Um, Secretary of Transportation under Carter. Um, yeah, so notable urban planner and child rapist, Neil Goldschmidt, had this great image for like putting a postcard building in Portland's downtown. He was tapped by the Carter administration, became Secretary of Transportation. He's no longer directly involved in stuff. So the guy who ends up heading up the committee to select this building is a Portland City Councilman named Frank Ivensee. Frank Ivensee was an old-school blue-collar conservative Democrat. Frank Ivensee wants a cheap building. Frank Ivensee wants to save the taxpayers money. Yes, and somebody just said he was evil. He also didn't like hippies. He really didn't like hippies. So Frank Ivensee, when he's in this, uh, heading up this committee, and you know, that is approaching Philip Johnson, what he wants is a building that's 90% of market rate 
for new buildings that are being constructed in major American downtowns at the time. Frank Ivancy has the idea that, you know what, it's just a bunch of government offices, doesn't have to be fancy, fuck it, let's get a cheap building and save a bunch of money. Like, that is his idea. Now, Philip Johnson, major American postmodernist, he knows this. Knowing this information, he is able to alert his protege, Michael Graves, to the specific biases that a lot of these selectors have. And he says, this is a hypothetical conversation, but he says, hello, Michael Graves, my young protege. They are looking for a cheap building. They are looking for something 90% market rate in American downtowns at this time, late 1970s, early 1980s. Maybe you should design to those specifications. And Michael Graves says, thank you very much, Philip Johnson. I will do precisely that. And he does precisely that. So in that design contest, there are two other entrants. One of them looked kind of like this. Yeah, so this was, uh, this was one of the uh, other entrants to that contest. Uh, this was from Arthur Erickson Architects, and you can see this is a modernist design. It's all about uniformity, 90 degree angles, lots of squares, and it is a pretty typical downtown building. Now, it's got some cool elements and it's sort of elevated off the ground and there are literally trees underneath the building. That's neat. Um, but it looks more office building-y than the Portland building looks. Um, another entrant was from uh, Mitchell Giavula Architects. And this is also fairly office building-y. Um, I think that this is probably the least exciting of the three entrants. Uh, and then, of course, you had this. You had this design, which is this tripartite structure in that you have a base, then you have the building that's suggestive of columns, then you have the capital on top. Also, this Portland building, there is a literal goddess, a statue called Portlandia in the middle. On the top is what Michael Graves called his Mediterranean village of several small buildings that would literally be, be on the roof and that you could walk amongst. And it was all suggestive of a classical Greek or Roman temple. And people noticed this. Um, Philip Johnson, he described uh, the three entrants as a conventional glass cube, a donut, and a temple. <laughs> and he might have been just a little tiny bit biased. But when this was proposed, uh, even as a sketch, the Portland building was already getting put into architectural textbooks. It was already getting a whole lot of press. People saw this thing and immediately declared it to be the future of architecture. Yeah. Got a lot of attention even before it was built. Um, so the selection process, though, in Portland, Oregon itself, didn't really take into aesthetics at all, and everybody knew that. In fact, the Oregonian, in their reporting on this, uh, somebody said, excuse me, Joan Smith, president for the Portland Planning Commission, she complained to the newspaper, quote, I don't think it mattered what the building looked like as long as the bottom line penciled out. Um, they got it because it was cheap. It was cheaper than the other two designs. Uh, there was also a city commissioner who at the time said it was, quote, totally unacceptable. It is not Portland, does not symbolize Portland, and it does not belong in Portland. 
Symbolically, in reality, the Graves Building is a fortress. It says that government is monolithic, imposing and remote, rather than open and accessible to the public. It excludes pedestrians, ignores the park, and focuses on itself to the exclusion of its downtown neighbors. We must not be trapped into making a decision primarily on cost, which is what is happening. I believe we should trust our sense of art, aesthetics, and good taste, and select a building pleasing to Portlanders. Boom. So even at the time, a lot of people hated this, but you know what? It's really cheap. Cheap building, guys. And because there was controversy about it, the jury said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We are going to ask for revisions of both the Portland building and also the other runner-up design, the Erickson building, the one that looked like a cube. And we're going to ask them to resubmit designs, and then we'll make a decision. So Michael Graves, who designed the Portland building, and the Erickson firm, who designed the other one, the runner-up, they did what any sensible architects who are submitting designs to a design contest would do and threaten the city with lawsuits. And they said, how dare you? There were specific parameters for this. We put a lot of work in this. This is a violation of local procurement procedures, and we're going to lawyer up. And the city said, oh, come on. And then after a whole bunch of noise, no lawsuits were actually filed. So Erickson and Michael Graves literally went back to the drawing board. And I mean back to the drawing board because they were architects. That's what architects use. And there were several several modifications to both the Erickson building and the Portland building. The Portland building in particular, originally was supposed to be stucco. Originally it was supposed to be all southwesty. Um, and they said, you know what? That's not going to do too well in a climate where it rains all the time. That will probably get, you know, sort of waterlogged and fall apart. Also, in this picture behind me, you might notice the giant flowing ribbons on the side of it. And they said, you know, even though this is the cheapest building, um, giant flowing ribbons are probably going to be fairly costly to maintain. How about if we don't put them on the side of an office building? Uh, and then there are debates in the Portland City Council over this conventional modernist cube versus the Portland building. And those debates included um, passionate, passionate, a passionate, passionate speech by Pietro Belushi, uh, he was an architect in Portland, a modernist architect, who designed a whole bunch of buildings in this city, and he absolutely hated the Portland building. He said that buildings should serve the public, and they should go function first, and aesthetics second. And he said what we have is a building that puts aesthetics over everything else, and then just leaves functionality to, eh, whatever, it's fine. Meanwhile, Michael Graves also gave an impassioned speech to the city council. I want to read you some of it. Here's Michael Graves, not talking about functionality, not talking about buildings serving the public. Here, here says, <clears throat> quote, As we have moved away from the primary identity of the machine as it is expressed in buildings, we are at last returning to the identity of the human being as it is seen in classicism. That sense that we classify the attitudes to the building's plan and surface and our own approach to it by virtue of the way that it represents us, not the way that it represents its making. That is an enormous break with the tradition that has been called modernism for the past 50 years. There is an argument outside 
not on this street necessarily, but in the world today about the direction of architecture. You find yourselves, interestingly, in the middle of it. You find yourselves having to choose between schemes that represent, on one hand, the human attitude, the way we see ourselves represented in our buildings, or, on the other hand, the craft or traditions of making the building. It's your choice. We feel, however, that to give the city its legibility, to give comprehension to the park and the understanding of this particular and rather glorious site between the city county building and the park itself, with the rather neutral background of the standard plaza of Oro Benko, we have an enormous opportunity here to not only say something about city government, but to say something about any building in any city." Unquote. <laughs> that is some incomprehensible bullshit, and I have no idea what any of that means. But, but, it sounded really, really good to a lot of the people listening, and again, I cannot emphasize this enough, the Portland building was cheaper than the other one. How much cheaper was this thing? So yeah, um, they also cheapened it down even further. For example, when they were designing the interior, uh, Michael Graves also really wanted to unleash his decoration and design skills upon that. But ironically, another different interior design firm outbid him, underbid him, and uh, they did the interior of his precious, precious Portland building. It was finished, it stands today. Uh, you can go look at it and bask in all of its postmodern glory. But neither the Portland building nor postmodernism have really held up all that well. A lot of postmodernists now see postmodernism with all of its jokes and class neoclassicism and you know references to you know capitals and Roman temples. It's kind of this like weird blind alley that everyone got really into. It was sort of embarrassing, and now we've moved on. And buildings that are built now, they're referred to as late modernist buildings. Um, the Portland building also, as a cost-saving measure, um, didn't really turn out to be a cost-saving measure. Uh, less than a decade after it was completed, it needed significant seismic upgrades and now needs over $140 million worth of repairs. Lots of repairs, lots of repairs that have to do with um, seismic upgrades. Also, it is leaky. I have been to the upper floors of the Portland building. A friend of mine works for the Water Bureau, gave me a tour, and the nice people who keep our sewers running have to deal with an office space that is best described as moist. <laughs> so it has some problems. But it's cheaper. But it was cheaper. <laughs> we got what we paid for, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, and nowadays, altering it or, rent or tearing it down would be difficult given that it's on the National Register of Historic Places. Now, normally a building has to be minimum, minimum 50 years old to get on the National Register. But the Portland building was the first of its type, so they made an exception. By the way, I am deeply uncomfortable with something younger than me being considered historical. I am not, not okay with that. Um, I don't know what we should do with the Portland building. Tearing it down would be satisfying. Uh, lots of people have had different reactions to it. Um, 
Frank Ivancy, the guy I just mentioned earlier, he called it our Eiffel Tower. <laughs> can we send uh, him a bill? The... Yeah, we can send him a bill. Yeah. Um, I think he lives in Arizona now. Uh, he's, he's no longer a Portlander. Um, Was he ever? <laughs> no. <laughs> Pietro Belushi, uh, the modernist architect who designed a lot of uh, modern buildings in Portland, like the Portland Art Museum, he called it an enlarged jukes box or the oversized beribboned Christmas package. <laughs> My favorite quote, this is a quote from an architecture historian and critic called Carter Wiseman. He called it a rather condescending exercise performed by a sophisticated academic on a culturally over-eager community. <laughs> We should put that on the side of it. So, folks, we're stuck with it. I think that there are a few lessons for this. Uh, I think the lessons are postmodernism was weird, we're over it. Uh, never hold a design contest, and you get what you pay for. If you enjoyed hearing my talk, and I hope you enjoyed it, again, I have a podcast. Interesting time. Search for it on iTunes. If you did not enjoy listening to me talk, I have a podcast, and you should still listen to it anyway. All right, thank you very much. Finn Janey, John is up next. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Again, that episode was part of Stumptown Stories. It is a monthly lecture series that I'm a part of that focuses mostly on Portland and Oregon history. We meet second Tuesday of every month at the Jack London Bar. And I and several other podcasters, authors, etc. talk about things such as that. Interesting times. We are recorded at the studios of Portland's own X-Ray FM, 91.1 and 107.1 in Portland, Oregon. Our engineer is Arthur Rosado. We're completely funded by our Patreon supporters. If you want to support the podcast, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. Click on Support Interesting Times on Patreon. Uh, please do go to iTunes, give us a rating, give us a review. Um, that really helps other people discover the show. We're also on Stitcher, Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, all of it. Thank you very much for listening. See you next week.